Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. If you would turn with me to Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, we're going to dive back into our next text in the Gospel of Mark as we continue our series, Cross and Crown. The title of today's message is, Let the Children Come. Let the Children Come. When I was in college, I had a class called Theory of Rhetoric. Um, And it was basically um, a class that discussed not only philosophy, but... um, it really discussed whether or not there was an absolute truth. A lot of our classes were just debates as to whether or not this is a chair. Well, it, it's, yes, it's a chair, says people who believe in absolute truth. And of course, those who believe that truth is subjective and up in the air and decided by the individual and by culture says, well, maybe that's not a chair. Our culture has called that a chair. Maybe it's not actually a chair. And then you just debate, have these silly arguments about whether or not that's a chair. And of course, I'm a guy who advocated for the idea that there is an absolute truth. There's a transcendent truth that goes beyond time and culture and individual and that there, there is an authority outside of us that determines what is true and what is right and wrong. And of course, the class always sort of moved toward those, the deeper parts of that conversation. And, you know, I was sort of outed as a Christian and there was many of the classes where it was Me kind of advocating for the Christian or conservative side of the argument with a couple silent Christians around me like, good job. And then everybody else just kind of attacking me and my worldview. And ultimately, you know, I was publicly insulted and criticized for believing such crazy wild things. And uh, you just believe what you believe because your, your parents told you to believe that or your pastor told you to believe that or some old book tells you to believe that. And so um, just kind of that that cultural company line and that, that argument that you hear a lot. So I went up to my, my professor after class one day and I said, Dr. Krieger, I said, I think my classmates um, have been done a disservice by not ever hearing the reasons for why somebody like me believes what I believe. And I said, so will, will you allow me to present for a 15 to 20 minutes in class a presentation on why I believe the Bible and why I believe that Jesus is who he said he is and, and give evidence for the resurrection of Christ. And she said, well, I think that would be wonderful. I said, great, okay, well, thank you. So she gave me 20 minutes, I got up in front of class and I gave evidence for the validity of the Bible and the resurrection of Christ. And it really went, and it went over well. I had a lot of students that they said, you're, you're, you're kind of making me rethink my, you know, my, my, my position on, on what you believe, and the Christians kind of came to my side and said, I'm really, man, that was really encouraging, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sort of emboldened to share my faith now. And um, my professor came up to me, a real thinker, um, sort of that, you know, left side of politics and worldview, and she came up to me and she said, wow, what you have said forces me to reconsider my position on the concept of transcendent truth. And I'm like, well, that's good, right? Yeah, that's good. She said, yeah, that's good. I said, okay. And then she sent me an email and, and later on. She said, I've thought about what you said. 
And she said, here's my take. She said, if there is a transcendent truth, then the only way to discover that is through education and academics and rigorous research. And it, it's out there somewhere, but only a few people will find it. It's, very, it's this elite knowledge that only a few people will find. The text that I'm about to read to you is what I responded to her. And what I told her was, if I believed what you believe, then I have a truth and a worldview that excludes children. And I have a God that excludes children and keeps children out of it. But I have a God who says this in Mark chapter 10. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you welcome us. You welcome children, and you welcome us to come as children. Help us to really just be inspired by this, your love for children, your welcome to children, and your invitation for us to come just like they come. And Lord, for the Dr. Kriegers of the world, for the Dr. Kriegers of our city and of our lives, that they would see that we have a God who reaches out and comes to us because we can't come to you, that we are it's not the wise and the strong, it's the helpless, the simple and the broken, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And I pray today that we say, and I am one of them. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're, we're in Mark chapter 10. We, we are um, sort of in the middle of this, this gospel. So where are we? What is the gospel of Mark? What, what is he doing? Kind of big picture before we dive more into this text. What's happening in this book? I'm going to illustrate it with a, well, an illustration. Sammy and Bobby were best friends. They had lived right next to each other, born on the same day. They both had blonde hair and brown eyes. They played together from the time they were babies, and they were inseparable. But early on, Bobby started forming words, but Sammy did not. Bobby got up and started walking on his legs, but Sammy didn't. And then at five years old, Bobby put on his backpack and went out to the curb to wait for the bus, but Sammy just sat in his house, speechless, looking out the window, kind of whimpered, not able to understand at all what was going on. And it's a very sad story until you understand that Sammy was a Cocker Spaniel. He's a dog. Now, until you knew that one important truth, the whole story was different, wasn't it? You didn't understand the meaning of the story until that one important truth came along. Jesus is that one ultimate truth that holds everything together in life. You can learn a lot of disconnected truths, but there's no way to make sense of it all without Jesus. He's the one important truth that holds the whole Bible together. Otherwise, you'll only see rules, commands, or principles if you don't see Jesus. You'll turn the Bible into sort of a Christian Aesop's fables and fail to see the big E on the eye chart, the ultimate meaning of the Bible, the one the whole story of the Bible is pointing to, Jesus Christ. We need Jesus to define and connect everything. The Dr. Kriegers of the world, my classmates, need Jesus to define and connect everything. And to remove Jesus would be like removing the sun from the solar system. All the planets would fly off into their own direction. It would be total chaos. We see everything through him. 
I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because I see everything else by it. So we're back to the Gospel of Mark now. Uh, Of course, uh, Josh uh, taught last week on the text right before this about marriage and divorce, did a great job, and now we find ourselves in this text today. And as we've worked through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been bringing gravity and understanding to a number of issues. And in uh, John chapter 3, another gospel, Jesus makes sense of hell and judgment. Last week, Jesus in in the gospel of Mark and in his gospel makes sense of marriage and divorce. And this week, the gospel is going to make sense of children and give us some direction in our quest to understand what are children for, what is family for, and what is the picture that he's giving us here. He just shared some shocking views last week on divorce and remarriage and, and the grace and how that connects to the message of grace. And then he says this, and I'll repeat it, Mark 10, 13, just the first two verses. They were bringing their children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. So Jesus shocks everybody by talking about hell, by talking about divorce and remarriage, Shocks everybody by talking about taking up their crosses. And now another huge shock. Guess what? Jesus loves children. Now maybe you go, that's not shocking. We have songs about it, right? Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. But this was shocking to them because Jesus was the Messiah, which means he's a pretty important guy. And to them in that culture and that society in that day, little children were not that important. And this is not an uncommon sentiment throughout history and throughout cultures of the world today. I've spent a year of my life as a missionary in Africa. And in Tanzania, I remember how shocked I was when we had um, an evangelistic meeting and 40 people came to Christ and uh, 30 of them were children. We went back to the church and the men that were with me reported to the church that 10 people had come to Christ. I said, what about the kids? Oh, he said, we do not count the children. Okay. So they wouldn't count child conversions. They weren't, you know, they, they, they didn't count as kids. And among ancient Gentiles, children were gen- generally thought of as a nuisance. They had a very low view of children. In fact, in the Roman Empire, abortion, like it is in our society today, was very common. And infanticide, the killing of babies once they're born, was also common. They've actually found old documents where People left instructions for midwives, and it said, if it's a boy, let him live. If it's a girl, dispose of her. The common sentiment of that day. Little kids were counted as a burden. They were loud. They were messy. They're not productive. And if you could afford to own slaves, then you would have your slaves care for the little children because that task was beneath you. It was menial labor, and I need to get out and do truly important things, not Raising children, I'll leave that to somebody else. I'll outsource that to somebody else. Now, among the ancient Jews, it was a a little better than that. They valued the lives of their children as God's people have always been against the murder of the unborn and the murder of the newly born. There were gods and goddesses surrounding the nation of Israel, false gods, obviously, and idols where they, they actually sacrificed children. Uh, to their false gods. Of course, 
Jehovah did not allow that and considered that to be an abomination and was one of the reasons that the nations around Israel were often severely punished. It's because of their treatment of children. The scriptures of the Old Testament taught that God's people were to count children as a blessing. But even in that society, in the Hebrew society, when kids were little, they were, they were to be seen and not heard. Their job was just to grow up until they could work in the fields, maybe provide some social security, and help out with the family one day. But it wasn't considered the work of important people to deal with kids. And so here's Jesus, the Messiah, the king to end all kings, and people are bringing children to him. Now, in our day, we expect powerful people to kiss babies. In their day, powerful people concealed their tender side and considered that to be a weakness. And so here come the children and the disciples, the bodyguards, you know, the security team are stepping in front going, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't you know how important this guy is? This is beneath him. Send him away. And Jesus, the scripture says, was indignant and disgusted with his disciples. He said, let the children come to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. The disciples must have been surprised because it was kind of culturally not the way it was. And his correction, he reveals some important things about kids and faith. And we need to hear it today in our culture and society too, don't we? Because our culture has removed its son. And there's disconnected people and pieces everywhere. So, when we put the sun back in the center of the solar system, when we put King Jesus back in the center of our lives, how do we view kids? Well, let's talk about how our society views kids today as a contrast. Our society tends to move toward two extremes. On one hand, we treat them like they're a burden, but on the other hand, we treat them like they are God. On one hand, we treat them like a burden. We hear skewed stats all the time, ridiculous stats that sort of scare people away from having children, stuff like, It'll cost $17.4 million to raise a kid today. People go, well, let me do the math. We can have one. We can have two. Or we can have zero. I remember my wife and I, when we got married, um, you know, we decided at first not to have kids. And, and then, then we were sort of waiting for the perfect time to have children. <laughs> I, remember, I remember one day just having a revelation like, I don't see anywhere in the near future where we're going to have a perfect time to have kids. I remember saying to my wife, let's just mess our lives up and have a kid. Let's just, let's trust God and just put ourselves out on the edge here and just screw our lives up and let's just have a kid. And it's the most wonderful thing we, we ever did. But our society often preaches against that kind of value and esteem. And pregnant with your first baby, you'll often hear well-meaning people tell you, it'll change your life in the same way that they would tell you that a bullet in the face might change your life. It's a warning. <laughs> I saw one online image that portrayed a woman trapped in a prison of motherhood that she couldn't get out of. And of course, the other message is, once you're a parent and you know, once you start getting into that season, you lose, you're no longer in the cool category. I mean, you have to get a minivan, right? <laughs> People don't look at you know, the dad and the mom loading the kids in a minivan and think, wow, they're cool. Nobody's thinking that way when you see the, the parents buckling the kids into the minivan. So kids are seen as a burden. And as a result, we have a low view of kids, a low view of parenthood, and we don't think that life with kids is a good thing. That's one extreme. The other extreme is we fly off in the other direction. Again, when we lose our son, 
where we worship our kids as gods. They become ultimate, the emotional center of everything we do. And their development is our sole concern. We put pressure on them to be the best at everything. We get our sense of identity of how, from how our kids are doing relative to other kids. And we're not doing our kids any favors with this mentality. When we orbit around our kids instead of teaching our kids to orbit around Jesus, to orbit around the true son, that's when life works better. That's when family works better. That's when kids become healthier. So we need to look to Jesus and see what place kids are supposed to have in his kingdom that we're all called to live in as God's family. And if you're in here today and you have no children, this is an important passage because in this text, Jesus is going to hold up kids also as an example of how we're all supposed to come to him and into the kingdom. So three, three thoughts here. The value of children, the invitation to children, and the metaphor of children. The value, the invitation, and the metaphor. I've already talked about this first point. I just want to share just a few more thoughts. That kids are valued in the kingdom. The value of children. Jesus values children. And one of the things I want to point out is before, think about a child. Have they done anything to deserve uh, or warrant the love of God or earn the love of God? No, before they've done anything, Jesus values them. And I remember when my daughter Grace was, gosh, she would have been probably three or four years old. I remember being in my kitchen one day in Waddington, New York, northern New York, up north of the Adirondacks, an area Heidi grew up in where we went to church for uh, a number of years. And I remember one day I was in my kitchen and I looked out my window and I saw my three-year-old daughter just running across the yard playing. And tears just began to stream down my face as I just, she didn't even know I was looking at her. She wasn't doing anything. She wasn't doing chores. She was, she was just being. And I'm just Tears are streaming down my face as I'm looking at my three-year-old daughter. And I just kind of caught myself just like, why am, I, why am I crying? And it was just, in that moment, it was just like the love of God just washed over me. And he's like, that's how I look at you. You just love her. She's not earning it. She's not doing chores, right? That She's not obeying your certain rule, therefore, wow, I'm, I'm impressed with her performance. Nothing like that. It was just, I loved her because I love her. And, and I realized that's how the Father looks at us. That's how Jesus looks at children. Before they do anything, he values them. So this whole idea flies in the face of any thought that children are a nuisance or a burden. If Jesus welcomes them, we should too, in our families and in our churches. And we need to check our attitude that we have toward kids today as Christians. Because society says, you know, unwanted, an unwanted pregnancy or an unexpected pre- pregnancy is to be treated like a disease. It's a problem. It'll derail your life. It'll ruin your life. And Jesus says, children are a blessing. All children are made in the image of God and children are a blessing. And again, this is a call back to the Old Testament. Look at Psalm 27, verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. The next two verses, it goes on to say, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So we should welcome children. We should respect and honor parenthood. Children are a gift from God and raising them is a privilege and a great calling. It's not easy. And yet our society kind of has 
a skewed view of that because we think easy things are good things and hard things are bad. Therefore, raising children is hard, so you should avoid that as much as possible. So parenting, because it's hard, must be bad. It must be a a burden that nobody would want to bear. But we believe the gospel, right? And the greatest deed ever done was the cross. It was the hardest thing ever done, and it was the best thing ever done. So to say kids are a blessing when the Bible says that doesn't mean the Bible is saying kids are easy. It's very hard and it's very good. And no, minivans will never be cool. But Christians are supposed to have a higher priority than cool, right? Our priority is love. And if part of loving and giving ourselves to others is purchasing a family truckster, we can do that. In fact, every time I'm tempted to think I'm cool, I remind myself, Derek, you are not cool. You are a Christian. So Jesus values children. Second, we see the invitation to children to come. That children should be brought to Jesus. They're invited and welcomed by the king to come to him. Now listen, we all want our kids to thrive. We all want our kids to succeed. But if I could boil down, what is the primary role that I have as a parent with my child. This might feel left field, but I think if you track with me, you'll agree with me. My primary role as a parent is to prepare my child for judgment day. To prepare my child to see Jesus face to face. It's not to succeed in life. It's not even to provide food and water and shelter. The primary role of the Christian parent is to prepare your child to see Jesus face to face on the great day of judgment. If I don't prepare them for that and I've done everything else, I have failed miserably as a parent. Now, I am not a parent that thinks that do A, B, and C, and therefore D, your child will turn out like this. Salvation is a supernatural thing as much for a kid in a Christian home as it is for a kid, you know, some irreligious person who might not have the same opportunities to hear the gospel as a kid in a Christian home. It's just as supernatural for your kid growing up in your Christian home, going to church, hearing the Bible all the time. They need a supernatural experience with God. I I understand that. At the same time, I also understand that I may be a means of grace to help bring my child to Christ. So that's a big part of the ministry of our home is to help aim those arrows toward Jesus. So I don't just want my child to behave when they're a teenager and not get pregnant. But I want them to be right with God. And one of the illustrations I've heard is that if we're simply, if we're not teaching our children the gospel and and teaching them about the grace of God and and having those constant conversations and we're just kind of a rule-based home where you need to reform or conform to this certain set of behaviors the problem with that is if, if their heart isn't won over by Christ and we raise them in legalism, then it's sort of like a Nerf football. Right? You ever see those old Nerf footballs? If you squeeze them, you can hold them in whatever shape you want them. Right? Squeeze that football. What happens when you let go of a Nerf football? It resumes its organic shape. And if we don't create an environment where our kids are hearing the gospel and being transformed by the Holy Spirit and being transformed by the gospel of Christian grace and not just trying to conform to a set of rules, what happens oftentimes is that when kids turn 18 and they leave home, we let go of the Nerf football and our children resume their organic shape. What they actually are, they begin to live out once they leave your home. And so while they're in our home, 
We want to create an environment where we're teaching them not to be perfect, not that conforming to the rules and getting a good report card is what gives you points with God or gives you some special you know, status in the church or in God's kingdom. But to give them that gospel of grace, that gospel of Christian grace that they will grow into. And I like the idea too where we don't want to give our kids sort of this coffee table version of Christianity where they grow out of simple truths because we've done them, dumbed them down so much. We want to give our kids big doctrinal theological concepts and ideas that they grow into, not that they grow out of. Now, some people will say, well, we need to let kids make their own choices. Well, yes, amen. You can't force your child to follow Jesus. That is ultimately true. And the goal is to wean our children from dependence, but we need to aim the arrows. If we believe education matters, right, then we'll instill that value. If we believe good nutrition matters, then we wouldn't just say to our kids, just eat whatever, make your own choices. We'll instill that value. We show them good choices. We can't force them, but we can aim them. And in the same way, if we believe that the most important thing in their lives is their relationship with Jesus Christ and their walk with God, then we will aim those arrows and instill those values. Now, this is different from doing everything we can to get our kids to say the sinner's prayer. I'm not a big sinner's prayer guy. Not a totally, you know, I'm not against it, but I think sometimes it can create false converts. So, you know, oftentimes parents out of love for their kids will try to lead their kids to Christ by, by you know, having this conversation. Uh, Johnny, do you want to go to heaven when you die with mommy and daddy? Or do you want to go to hell and burn forever and ever? I want to go to heaven with mommy. That's good, Johnny. Let's pray. And we, and, we, and we sleep well at night thinking our kids just accepted Jesus. And this can do more harm than good. False assurance, false faith, confusion. So if we get so focused on the decision, because we like things neat and clean, we can miss some very important things. Matter of fact, with my older girls, we went through a book um, by Kenneth Philpot called Are You Really Born Again? We used it as a morning devotional. We just read parts of it and talked about it. And the primary point of the book was to discuss the difference between being Christianized and actually converted and how we have this whole, this whole uh, swath of Christendom where people are Christianized but not truly converted because they never learned really what it means to be saved. Maybe they conform to a culture, they conform to some rules, maybe they externally conform, but they were never truly inwardly converted. And the book concludes that to truly be saved, every, every person, your child, needs a deep sense of three things. Number one, a deep sense that they are sinners who have fallen short and need to repent. Number two, that grace, God's grace, is the only answer. That they can't save themselves, but they need an external solution. And number three, that Jesus is that solution. Now, their conversion can come at different moments that you don't expect. It can come in a, what seems to be a trivial conversation in a car. It can come as you're sitting next to them after you tell them a bedtime story before they go to bed. I remember talking to my daughter, Joy, who's now 23 years old, and um, just sharing with her how Jesus loved you so much that he died for your sins because you, know, you and your dad were so sinful that we needed God himself to come and die for us. And I remember tears just beginning to well up in her eyes. And I knew she wanted to articulate that something was happening in her heart. And so I told her the, the story of the cross. 
And I remember she's laying in her bed and she looks up, to, up at me with these big tears in her eyes and she goes, was that nice? I said, yes, that was very nice. Very, very nice. And I said, do you want him in your life? She said, yeah. And I prayed with her and I think something significant happened in that moment before she went to bed that night. I remember another night when Reese was a little guy telling him the story of the Passover and how the Israelites were commanded to take the blood of a lamb and put it on the doorpost and how the death angel would pass over if they saw the, the blood of the lamb on the door of their heart. And Reese was just taken in with his story. And I said, Reese, that's a picture of Jesus. I said, do you have the blood of the lamb on the door of your heart? No. <laughs> do you want the blood of the lamb on the door of your heart? Yes, I do. Yes. Something significant happened that night. It was just a step of many conversations toward his conversion. And my daughter, Grace, I don't remember a moment. It just seems like she always knew the Lord. I remember sitting in my office one day and I heard her behind me. She was like four years old and she's going, Daddy, I love you. Daddy, you're mine. I'm like, oh, that's sweet. I love you too. She goes, I'm not singing to you, Dad. Cha-ching. She's singing to her Heavenly Father. Something that was happening in her heart. Now, raising children in a Christian household, we shouldn't feel like their conversion isn't real if it's not absolutely dramatic. We should believe that salvation in a Christian home is also a great story. Now, do you need to remember the day that you met your mother? No, you don't. You probably don't. But you know she's your mom. And in the same way, some of our children don't necessarily need to remember the day they met their Heavenly Father if they've grown up in, around the Gospel and grown up in our homes and grown up hearing the Gospel. And I think one of the questions that, that I hear a lot is, well, how much contrition is necessary? You know, like how much sorrow and brokenness and you know, revelation of, of their sinfulness? Well, they, while they need to understand their sinfulness, it can look differently at times. Sinclair Ferguson concludes, whatever it takes to open their hearts to Christ. Tim Keller compared converting to Christ like planting a seed, that sometimes the ground is hard and requires a pickaxe to open that ground up and put the seed in and requires significant contrition. Sometimes the ground is soft and wet and you can push the seed in with a finger. And our kids are different. They're all different. Sometimes you push the seed in with a finger, and sometimes you take, well, you take, and sometimes circumstances of life are like a pickaxe from God to get into their heart and show them the gospel. In both cases, the seed is in the ground. And my prayer for my kids and my prayer for your kids is that their conversions are young and boring. Now, that being said, at the same time, I don't want God to spare them anything they need for their faith to be authentic and real. And sometimes a season of wandering to taste the alternative God uses in their lives to show them that. So Heidi and I have, have concluded that when we pray for their conversion and their salvation for a revelation of grace in their lives, it doesn't always look pristine and perfect. Sometimes it looks like failure. Sometimes it looks like mistakes. Sometimes it looks like regret. Sometimes it looks like a heavy storm in their life. But if that's what God uses to bring a true revelation of the gospel, a true revelation of grace in their lives, then we rejoice rather than having these polished little Christian worship dolls. 
which may or may not be true and authentic conversion. So, while they're in our home, we saturate them with the gospel. And the point of this message is not a how-to to get into all that, but some of the things we do is we, our pattern has been throughout our, our family life together that we do takeaways on Sundays together in a family meeting on Sundays after the service. Usually right now, it's usually Sunday night. What's your takeaway from the service? What's your takeaway? What did God speak to you? And just pushing that seed in the ground, getting that seed into their hearts. We have family devotions. Right now we're using a Tim Keller. Um, it's, um, it has a devotional for every day of the year from the book of Proverbs. And we, we just read that together and we discuss it and we pray together. But a lot of times it's just the flow of life. It's just conversations that happen uh, around the dinner table or traveling in a car together uh, or randomly that happen throughout the flow of life. And it's like the book of Deuteronomy says, when you're walking on the road, when you wake in the morning, when you go to sleep at night, just constantly revolving our lives around God and the gospel. And we don't do that just because I'm a pastor. I do that because I'm a dad. I do that because I'm a father. Because Jesus says, let the children come to me. So we create an environment where we're aiming the arrows toward Jesus. And we do the same thing in the church. We want to be a church that welcomes and loves kids. I don't even mind, and I want to say this, I don't even mind... And I want you to know that children are welcome in the service. And I don't mind crying babies. Listen, in a society with millions and millions and millions and millions of abortions, I love the sound of crying babies. And we need to be a church that welcomes uh, children and families and has a a culture, uh, a family culture where we welcome families to worship together. That's one of the reasons why we, why we changed the order of worship, to have children together during the musical part of the service at least, so that we can be worshiping together and not separate the demographics so severely that we're not actually experiencing the service together. Here at Redeeming Hope, we have a great kids' ministry and curriculum, but ultimately, parents, you're the pastors. And our, our, we see our role is to, not to replace you, but to come alongside of you and to team with you in raising your children for Christ. So, we see that children are a blessing, that we're called to bring our kids to Christ, and that we want to be a church that welcomes kids. And also from Jesus, we know that kids' ministry is not JV. It's not not like second-rate ministry. Here's Jesus, the king to end all kings, working with little children. So this tells us that important people work with kids. And of course, first we're talking about parenting. My wife has often said in encouraging young moms that sometimes my work during the day is loving my child. Because there can be that temptation to feel like, man, I didn't get anything done today. What would you do? Uh, I changed some diapers and I spent time with my kid while they were sick or they were crying. Maybe some days, mom, dad, that's your work. And that's beautiful work. That's not JV ministry. That's not JV work. So when we talk about kids ministry, the first thing we're talking about is parenting. But also we have, of course, kids ministry in the church. And I think sometimes we see kids ministry sort of as a stepping stone until you do something really important. But again, the King of Kings worked with children. He loved children. He welcomed children. And so Jesus says it's real ministry. It's a job for important people. And I love the fact that the men of our church are also getting into the kids ministry and teaching the kids and and seeing that as varsity ministry. It's a good thing. Jesus rebuked his disciples for talking like the nursery doesn't matter. Seriously? Diapers and crying? Isn't that a waste of good talent? 
not in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, the world's values get turned on their heads. In the world, you invest where you get a return. The important people spend their time with the winners, the tens. But here's Jesus, who's more than a ten, holding little babies and loving them while they are helpless. Let's look at verse 14 again. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. So you've seen the value of children that Jesus has. We've seen the invitation, let them come to me. And now he says something really shocking. He tells us that the kingdom of God belongs to people who are like babies. It belongs to people who are like these children. So now we're going to finish by talking about the metaphor of children. Children are a picture of how we come to God. Us to babies, shut up, you're annoying. Jesus to babies, become like them. Become like these children. All of the world's values, and Jesus saying that, have been turned upside down. The kingdoms of the world belong to the strongest people. The kingdom of God belongs to those who are helpless. Remember in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus is teaching us that the kingdom, his kingdom is opposite of the world. Let's look at this story briefly in Luke's gospel. Right before bringing children to Jesus, Jesus tells this story in Luke 18, a parallel passage to the one we're looking at in Mark. Right before the children come, Jesus tells this story. He also told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector in the temple, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For the one who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the one who is justified in this story is the one who, like a child, turns to his parents for help, turns to God for help. I remember when my kids were young, we we started playing the uh, Mario Kart game. And in Mario Kart, you can get this like digital license you got to kind of do all the, the tracks in Mario Kart. And of course, what's the hardest one, at least historically? Rainbow Road, right? And I remember when my kids were young. I mean, they're great at it now. But when my kids were young, they couldn't complete their license without doing Rainbow Road. And they'd always fly off the track over and over. I happen to be very good at Rainbow Road. And so they'd say, Dad, can you do it for me? Of course, I'd do it. They would, they would be able to get their license without it. In their helplessness, they came to their father and I completed Rainbow Road for them. I gone done did that, son. Now, now, Jesus drove Rainbow Road for you. Does that, that work? Jesus fulfilled the requirements of your license for you so that you can have your Mario Kart license. Why? Because at the time, they were helpless. And Jesus says, come like these children. 
come with the same dependency and helplessness. Doesn't make sense, does it? That this is the ones to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs? I mean, if you worked with someone who whined 15 times a day, I can't do it. If you're a good employer, you probably let him go. You need to perform here. You need ability. Girls, if a guy takes you out and you've gone on dozens of dates with him, but every time he says, ah, I can't pay for it this time. Wasn't it the same as last time? Yeah, same, same thing. At some point, you'd probably be thinking of cutting him loose, right? Hit the eject button. You're looking for some ability in the guy. On a job interview, you don't flaunt the things you can't do. You parade your achievements and credentials to get that door open for you. If you're an athlete, you're not rewarded for the things you don't accomplish. But the same way you come to Jesus is not by ability, it's by inability. By admitting sinfulness, weakness, need, by saying, I can't do it. By being like a little child. And this is so counterintuitive, it runs directly against the nature of our hearts that is addicted to self-salvation and moralism and legalism, that Jesus has to reinforce it repeatedly. Later in this very chapter, in verses 42 through 45, Jesus says this, Jesus called to him, them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What is he saying? Up is down. The disciples don't get it. Next week, we're going to see the rich young ruler doesn't get it. Jesus says, ba- babies are the model. Babies are the prototype. Babies are helpless. He's saying, be like them. Why is this the picture? So it can be all of grace. So he can get the glory. Then it says, Jesus blessed them. Blessing them was more than just saying, God bless you, or in this case, because Jesus was God, me bless you. It was pronouncing something, saying, the fullness of God is with you. You are whole. And Jesus tells us who the blessed are in the Sermon on the Mount, and I've already kind of referenced this. Final text, look at this text here in Matthew chapter 5. The great sermon of Christ, the Sermon on the Mount. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's an upside-down kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? Blessed are those who recognize the poverty of their own righteousness. Blessed are those who recognize their helplessness. Theirs is the king. That's the door to the kingdom? Not the, the A-plus on the report card or the, the perfect performance or the perfect run or the perfect score. No, he says the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. That means you're grieving something. You're lacking something. Blessed are the meek. That's not what our world says. Our world says might makes right. The strong arm rules. Blessed are the strong. Blessed are the wise. Blessed are those who pick themselves up from their bootstraps and make it happen, right? There's motivational things you see on social media all the time. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, they don't have it. They're unrighteous people. He says they'll they'll be satisfied. This whole thing in Christ is upside down. Jesus says, when you come, you have to come like a child, helpless. Think about a child when they're born. 
They just come out, they're all floppy and stuff, right? It's kind of, the doctor puts them on their mother. If that mother doesn't grab the baby when you put the baby on the mom, that child just roll off like a football. Jesus says, come like that. That's how you come. He blessed them. That means he gave them the kingdom. We come poor in spirit. You know, for years, uh, I would say, Jesus is my everything. But I never really thought until I was smashed in a trial of depression in the early 2000s and spiritual burnout and the failure of my legalism. Until I was smashed with all that, I didn't understand the other side of that. If Jesus is really my everything, then I need to boast in my weakness. Jesus is my everything, and I am my nothing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Come like a child. Some quick applications to this message. Number one, don't pretend. Be real. Be weak. Remember that the only thing that you and I contributed to our salvation was the sin that made it necessary. We come humbly. We look away from ourselves and our performance. We break the addiction to self-salvation. We look to Christ. Therefore, we don't need to put masks on here at Redeeming Hope. You don't need to put a mask on in your group. One of the things you'll hear me say a lot is, it's okay not to be okay. But it's not okay to be okay with not being okay. You get that? It's okay not to be okay. It's not okay to be okay with not being okay. In other words, we expect that over time, when we bring ourselves to Jesus, that he will heal us. So we don't pretend. And I'll take it one step further. Pretending will actually hurt you because you'll miss so much, not the least of which is the power of the gospel. So don't pretend. Number two, depend on Christ like a child. Like a nursing child depends on his or her mother. We depend on Jesus like a branch in the vine. And number three, let's value children in the home and in the church, and the ministry of discipleship to children, and the ministry of parenting, coming alongside one another and building one another up and encouraging one another in that. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.